Good morning. Take your Bibles out and go to Psalm 139 today. Psalm 139. I'd like to welcome you if you're new at Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dale, and uh, it's my privilege with uh, my sidekick and buddy Ryan to teach the Word here with you. And uh, it's, it's always a privilege to do that, to listen, study, explore the truth about God, ex- truth about life from His own mouth, from His own Word. So open to Psalm 139. We're in a series called God Is... It's a short title, but very, very significant. It's been said that if you have the wrong idea about God, then you've made the biggest mistake you can make as you try to live life. If God is real, if God exists at all, then knowing the truth about God, not just kind of what we wish might be our view of God, but knowing the truth about God becomes the most important truth Uh, in all of life. Ryan did a great job introducing that last week. Pray with me as we study this one called God. Father, thank you for your word and your revelation, uh, the fact that you reveal yourself to us, because we understand that uh, it's impossible for us uh, as uh, mere finite humans to thoroughly understand you unless you reveal yourself. So we pray that the invisible might become clear, that the unseen might be seen more clearly today as we talk about and listen to your word. Uh, We love you. We thank you for this great psalm. We thank you for the life of David that you were so intimately involved in. We pray that you would teach us through this psalm that you inspired David to write in Christ's name. Amen. When I thought about a series entitled God Is, uh, I immediately thought, let's anchor it in the Psalms. It's not that the rest of Scripture don't contain every Scripture, in fact, contains a lot of truth about God. So all of Scripture would work. But the reason I love the revelation of God through the eyes and the ears and through the revelation of the writers of the Psalms, especially David, who we'll listen to today, is it deals not only with the facts about God, but it deals with our feelings toward God. In fact, it even deals with God's feelings toward us. It doesn't just talk about the theories of God. It talks about His attributes in action. So it's not just His theoretical attributes, but it's how He thinks, how He acts, how He relates to us and invites us to relate to Him. Also like studying him through studying God through the eyes and the experience of the inspired word through David, because David, like Peter, who we focused on in our last series, out of the Gospels, has something in common. You know, Peter had some incredible highs in his relationship with Jesus Christ, and then he had boom, he had some incredible lows. And when you look at the life of David, it's very similar. David, as a young man, is the same David. This David that wrote this psalm is the same David that tackled uh, the challenge of the giant Goliath with only a slingshot and no armor. But he said, you know something, if God is with me, I don't need the other stuff. This is the same David that Scripture says David was a man whose heart was so on, in tune. It says he was a man after God's own heart. Those are all things I wish were true of me but often are not. 
But David's also a guy whose feet are made of clay. He's a real man who had real temptations and sometimes blew it. And sometimes when he should have been in battle, he stayed home. Sometimes when he should be watching what he watched, he watched a young woman on a rooftop named Bathsheba. And next thing you know, he's having an affair. And not only does he have the sexual affair with Bathsheba, but then he has to kind of cover it up because he's God's guy. He's the king of Israel, and he needs to cover it up. So to cover it up, he tries several things, and finally he resorts to having her husband really set up to be murdered. So David has incredible highs, but he has incredible lows. And then David, as we'll study a couple weeks from now, had the incredible experience of discovering the loving kindness and the grace of God, so that even after those horrendous sins of his, he discovered God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, and and he was restored and wrote many of these psalms after his lowest points in his life. So as we listen to to David today, I just want us to ask the question, so what was David's secret? What made David have the relationship with God that he had? the faith in God that he had, and how do I kind of learn from that so that I can apply it in my life? And what we're going to see is that David had a very clear vision of what God really is like. God is, according to David, omni-everything. Most Psalms deal with or focus on one or two attributes of God. Today, we're going to see that God is omni. What's it mean? It means without limits. So God is without limits, and we're going to see that he's without limits today in not just one, two, but actually three aspects of who he really is. And then we're going to see how David counsels us to, okay, well, if God is that, then so what? How do we respond? So pray with me again. Father, I need to ask you to uh, kind of speak clarity about yourself into our lives. We just need to openly confess. I need to openly confess. It is easy for my thinking about God to be shaped by my culture, by my experiences. And I ask that you help me go beyond culture, beyond experience, to listen to your kind revelation of yourself. Teach us through the uh, experience in this psalm written by King David. In Christ's name, amen. Turn to the Word, Psalm 139. There's an outline provided, as always, uh, to help you track with me a little more closely. If you'd like to take a few notes, usually you learn a little more. Here we go, Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. The picture and the images of a, of a cupped hand over persons like God's huge hand is kind of like, like traveling with us everywhere we go, knowing everything we do. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Let's pull up there. In the first six verses, what we learn first about God as the omni-everything is that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows everything about me, every move I make, even before I make it. In verse 1, he gives, and this is a common uh, kind of motif in the Psalms, in verse 1, he gives the big idea, and that is this, that 
God, oh God, you have searched me and known me. And then he begins to explain just how thoroughly God really knows us. And he uses a technique in Hebrew literature that I want to teach you a little bit of Hebrew today, okay, if you're up for that, and that is called a merism. It's a literary technique. We use it in English too, but in Hebrew they used it a lot. And a merism is this. It's using two extremes to represent not just the extremes, but everything in between. So in English we have some merisms. What would they be? Talk to me. Some examples of a merism. Light and dark. You got everything from light to dark. What else? Alpha and the omega, which is the Greek version of the English A to Z, or beginning and end, yeah, of the alphabet. So it's kind of like if you say, you know, he, he knows everything. He understands, he understands everything from A to Z. You don't, you don't just mean he understands all the A's and all the Z's. He understands all the A, B, C, D, etc., all the way along the spectrum. God is all-knowing. Now look at these, um, these merisms. Uh, you have to understand the, the, the text a little bit to see them pop. Number, verse 1, verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. In other words, every move I make, sitting, rising. You understand my thought from afar. Now this word from afar in Hebrew can actually mean from afar in distance, but most commonly it's probably here means from afar, meaning before I even speak it. And he, and he explains that later. So even before I speak, even before my thoughts exist, you already know them. The next one he says, and you understand, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. doesn't sound like a merism until you realize that the, the uh, English word path could be translated. It's the Hebrew word for journeyings. So you understand my journeyings and my laying down. In other words, when I'm getting up and going somewhere or when I'm sitting and going nowhere, you understand every move I make is the big idea. I even love the significance of this subtle little word. He says, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. What he, you know, this word scrutinize is the same word that uh, in Hebrew, if they took uh, some grain, and the grain would be harvested and they dry it out, right? Can you picture like, uh, like baskets of wheat? And, and, uh, and the grain has this worthless kind of ch- chaff around the kernel of the good wheat, right? The wheat kernel, the actual seed. So what they do is they would take that and they would, they would, they would scoop it and thrust it up into the wind and the chaff and, the, and, they, would, and they would use a sifting thing and it would basically, uh, the chaff would separate from the kernels and the wind could blow the chaff away and the kernel, which is heavier, would fall to the ground and, and they kept bouncing it on this sifting type of, a, type of a net. So what he's saying is, God, you understand me so thoroughly, it's like you take every thought of mine and, and, and you sift it. You understand not only what I said, but why I said it and what my heart issues were going on behind it and why that was important to me or why it wasn't. And, you know, God, you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. You don't just kind of pay attention, you know, lackadaisically, but you are intimate in all of your knowledge. He even says, before I speak, he says, before there's even a word on my tongue, verse 4, behold, oh God, you know it all. So he says, you know what I'm going to say even before I think it and say it. That's incredible. This is knowledge, he says, is too wonderful for me. Verse 6, I cannot really attain to it. It kind of reminds me of the New Testament equivalency of this in Romans 11, 33 to 36. You ought to read that this week. 
Romans 1 through 11 is that tremendous explanation of what Jesus Christ did for us. And it, 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 it explains how we are more sinful than we realize we are. Uh, and the consequence of that is beyond repair for us, our sinfulness. Then it explains how Christ, by His grace, by His love, unconditionally went to the cross, died for our sins. It explains the beauty of the gospel of Christ dying for our sin. It goes on to explain the freedom that that creates in us as we are born anew. We have new life. It's called being born again when Jesus talked to Nicodemus or born from above. So we have spiritual life. And then with our spiritual life, we're no longer a slave to sin and now we're free to begin to change. And, 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 and then he gets into the, the, the security of being in his grace and his love that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he and explains all that. And then he goes into this wild explanation, wonderful, beautiful, deep thinking in chapters 9 through 11 about what God is doing in the world and, and the difference in what God was doing with Israel and what he's doing with his church. And, 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 and it's, it's an incredibly, probably the deepest 11 chapters of theology in Scripture. But what I wanted to point out to you was how it ends. It ends with uh, Romans 11. 33 to 36, and it says something like this. It says, Oh, the depth of the wisdom of both the, uh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments! How unfathomable are your ways! For who among us, as mere people, understand the mind of the Lord? Who is, which among us have like given to God that it might be given back to us? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, the reason I have that memorized is I love that verse because it keeps me humble when I think I fully understand why God does what he does. And when I'm frustrated with God because I'm wondering, you know, God, I prayed about that and you just seemed to be silent or you ignored me. Or God, why did you let that happen in my life? Or God, why did you let that happen to this person that I care about and love so deeply? When I am frustrated with God, and maybe you've never been frustrated with God, but I have. When I am frustrated with God and I don't understand, I go back to Romans 11 and it says, oh yeah, Dale, God kind of predicted that he would frustrate me. How unsearchable are your judgments, your decisions about what to do, what not to do. How unfathomable your ways because you are God and I am not. See, one of the problems with our culture and the reason we're doing this series is our culture wants to say, you know something, I've given it a lot of thought and I have figured it out, and I believe God is this. And let me tell you something. As soon as any human being, including me, especially me, would ever say, you know, I've, I've kind of figured it out. God is this. I say, wow, why, why, why do you believe God is like that? Why do you think he thinks that, does that? I say, well, it's just what feels right to me. Guess what? If it feels right to me, you better go the other direction. Because I'm not who? God. I'm not God. Title of today's message is God is Omni Everything. Guess what? I am Omni Nothing. You can look at the person next to you right now, just in case they have been sleeping, and say, You are Omni Nothing. Can you do that real quick? Just to remind everyone. Yeah, especially your wife. She needs to know. <laughs> especially the, I mean, the husband. I say wife, I should have said husband. Yeah, yeah, the husbands need to know. You are an omni-nothing husband, okay? I mean, you're pretty good. You're getting better even by the grace of God, but you're still omni-what? 
nothing. God is omni-everything. So he's omni-everything, and, and, and David says, you know something, this is beyond me. This is too high. I cannot attain to this. But then it gets even more. He thinks, okay, sometimes if God is that aware that he understands everything about me, some people might say, well, does that mean that all of life is therefore predestined and out of my control? Because if God knows everything I'm going to do already, then some would say that means I, it's all predetermined. Let me give you two extremes to avoid theologically that people can go to. What I just described would be called fatalism. That since God knows everything in the future, then it has to happen. Therefore, I got no control. Not true. Uh, when you listen to Scripture, when you read this passage, you go all the way back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 when man was created. God gives man moral freedom to make choices. Okay, so we, God can know all of our choices and we still have freedom and responsibility for those choices. Make sense? Yeah. But what it means is, yeah, God knows. He knows every choice we'll consider. He knows every decision we'll make. He even knows all the ramifications that will flow out of those choices. That's how vast his knowledge is. That's why I think David says, whoa, this gives me a headache. That's kind of in the Hebrew text. He gives me a headache. I can't understand this. God's knowledge is so thorough. So don't buy into fatalism, thinking that, okay, just because God knows everything, that means nothing, not, like I have no choice, no responsibility. Don't buy into fatalism. Don't go to the other extreme. The other extreme is a popular notion floating around churches these days called open theism. And it's, the, it's kind of the idea that because God gives us moral freedom, then God himself does not know the future. Because the future doesn't happen until I make a choice and do something. So in other words, it kind of says, since God's given me freedom, uh, even God doesn't know what I'm going to do. Therefore, God doesn't know the future. Don't go there. And the reason is, that's not the revelation of God that we're looking at today. This passage clearly says that God knows it all. Even before there is a word on my tongue... Even before I think it and speak it, God already knows what I'm going to say. He knows it all. Now, that's a level of knowledge that just kind of blows my mind. Second point. So David kind of imagines, verse 7, so where can I go to get away from this God? Because this is kind of a scary God, okay? If he knows that much about me, then sometimes I might be tempted to, to want to flee from him. So verse 7, he asks the question, and then he answers it. So where can I go from your spirit? Verse 7, where can I flee from your presence? And then in verse 8 and following, he gives several more merisms. Same thing. Notice this. No matter where I go up or down, he says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol was considered the place of the dead, okay, the resting place of the dead. So whether I go up to the heavens or down to the resting place of the dead or the grave, uh, God, you're there. Well, what about if I go right or left, not up or down? He says, if I take the wings of the dawn or dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. Now, why was he say the wings of the dawn and the remotest parts of the sea? The sun comes up where? East or west? Come on now. You've been in California too long. 
Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes up in the east, okay? I know some people say there's nothing live east of five. I, I get that, okay? But, 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 but the reality is there is life east of the five. And, uh, yeah, and, there, and there's a sunrise over there somewhere. No matter where you are in the world, the sun comes up in the east. The sun sets in the west. So it's interesting that from the Hebrew mindset, the wings of the dawn, the dawn is the furthest part of the east, the remotest part of the sea, guess what? In the Hebrew language, the Hebrew word for sea is also translated west. Because if you grow up in Palestine, you grow up in Israel, which direction is the sea? Always. So it's not like in the U.S. where we think, well, we got east coast, west coast, okay? They got no east coast, right? Okay. So the, the fact of the matter is, when they say for the remotest part of the west or the sea, so no matter where I go, from the furthest point east or west, God, you're there. And now I love this saying. He says, even if I take the wings of the dawn, behold, you're still there. The wings of the dawn, what is that? That's when that moment when you see the sunrise beginning to peak over the mountains. And in fact, the sunrise hasn't even hit, but the light has. Have you ever been up that early? And you look to the east over the mountains, and all of a sudden you see like little rays of light kind of, kind of shoot out. That's, it looks like wings, right? That's the wings of the dawn. First time I noticed this, I remember I'd been studying this passage years ago. My wife and I took a trip out west going through, um, first service I said Yosemite by mistake. We were not there yet. It was, in, um, it was in Yellowstone, thank you very much. It was in Yellowstone. And we're staying at the Yellowstone Inn, and our, and our room had a view of Old, uh, old Faithful. And, and I was wanting to get an early morning picture of Old Faithful erupting. So I'm up like at 5.30 in the morning and I'm kind of watching out my window with the camera. This is before digital anything. And I'm watching and I'm waiting to, to click it and capture the moment. And all of a sudden, by God's incredible gift to me, right as Old Faithful started erupting, over top of Old Faithful were the wings of the dawn. I mean, the light just kind of went whoosh and just shot out. And I got the picture. And you know what? I would have showed it to you today, but that picture is long since lost. Okay, but that's, but that's my bad, all right? Yeah. You know, don't you love digital stuff that you can save? I have no idea where that picture is. But it's in here. It's in here. And it reminds me of what this psalmist is saying. Well, he's saying, Dale, you can go up and down from heaven to hell and you can't get away from God. You can go east to west from the distance of the east to the dawn. And even if you travel west at the speed of light, that's the wings of the dawn. Even if you go, you travel at the speed of light, you can't get away from God. He is always present. He is omnipresent. Now, what do we learn from all this? He also then later talks about what if I go into severe darkness? In fact, what if I go into the darkness of the womb even? He says, God doesn't need flashlights. God doesn't need any light. God is light. No darkness can conceal me from God. See, there's no place to go. What it means is there are no secrets. I got no secrets with one person. And that's God. He absolutely knows everything about me from my best days to my worst days, and he already sees my entire life. Boom. And if I try to get away from him, there's no escaping him. 
He's always there. He's always watching. He's always waiting. He's always, third truth, involved. Omni-everything in knowledge. Omni-everything in presence. And then the third point is David begins to say that the amazing thing is he's intimately involved in my life all the time. The God is, I had to make up a term for this, omni-involved, okay? One of you theologians, give me the right word for that later, but I like my version. I made it up. Omni-involved. He is always without limits in his involvement and interest and care about my life. He picks it up. Let me just give you some highlights. Verses 13 to 16. God, you formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, even when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. He's, he's using a metaphor here to refer to, to his formation in the womb. By the way, it's a strong passage that supports what modern medicine now knows, which is life does begin at conception. All it does is get more and more complex, and all it does is get bigger. But the fact of the matter is, from conception, uh, life begins, and God is involved, and God is intimately involved with my life. From conception, how far? Verse 16, your eyes have seen mine unformed substance, that's in the womb, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when there was yet not even one of them. In other words, God, you saw my beginning, and God, you see my ending, and you know everything about my life in between. My life, your life, is like a, uh, it's like a book. It's already been written. And God knows every word in the book. You and I don't. Now, we're still living the life. We're still making choices. We're still responsible. That's the amazing thing is that God gives us this moral freedom, but yet God knows the story of you. See, and this is where I get so amazed. David's response to this type of level of knowledge of God um, is now laid out. And, and, and I understand why David responds. He responds really with, with a fourfold response. And here they are. I'll show them to you. The first is in verse 17. How precious. He doesn't say how intellectually stimulating this is. He says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should try to count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Wow. So his first response is worship. His first response is, is rejoice. You see him beginning to rejoice or worship this God who is so intimately involved in his life. He finds joy in the attentive presence of God. You know, to think that God really is paying attention. One of the most common misperceptions about God, I read a survey about how teenagers think about God today. And this was written probably five, six years ago. So now it's those of you in your 20s. And, it, and they surveyed all these uh, teenagers and they focused on p teenagers that go to church. So these are even teenagers kind of being exposed to Christianity in some form. 
And, and it said that the most common view of God is kind of a moralistic uh, deism. And, and what they meant by that was this. They said, God, uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism, right? That's Steve. Steve, you know these things. You remember these better than me. It's not in my notes, so I'm being risky here. But uh, yeah, moralistic, meaning God just wants us to behave better, okay? Be, be nice, be good. Uh, that God is kind of this moralistic uh, one. Uh, therapeutic, meaning whenever you're hurting or you have pain, God wants to be your therapist. He wants to come along and give you some counseling and comfort and help you, okay? Especially in a time of crisis or when things go wrong. Uh, but other than that, it's moralistic, therapeutic, deist, deistic God. Deism basically teaches that God did at some point somehow probably create everything, but then after he created it all, he kind of wound up the clock uh, so it would begin to work, and then he kind of sat down in his old man rocking chair, and he's just kind of watching things happen. And he's not really involved. He doesn't really care about getting involved in your life or my life. He's just kind of watching the clock run. Is that the God of Scripture? No. That's the God of our culture who wants God to be hands-off, wants God to be distant, wants God to be there when we need Him so He jumps to attention when we're hurting. But this is not the God of David. It's not the God of truth. The truth about God is He is intimately aware knowing everything about you. He is intimately present always with you. And thirdly, he is intimately involved in all of our lives. That's a different view of God than what you're being taught by the culture. Don't buy into a lie about something as important as God. So how do we respond? Number one, we ought to get excited. Wow, our God is incredible. That's rejoice. Secondly, Probably we do what David did. We say, hey God, if you're all this, can you help me? Somebody help me, especially in times of trouble. David cries out in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you, O God. They speak wickedly against you, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with an utmost hatred they have become my enemies and you know and you got to remember the context david was being literally pursued by the enemies of david who were also the enemies of god trying to kill him so david prays what is a very natural prayer god would you take care of those enemies help the boy help me and i think that's how we tend to pray when we first begin to realize, wow, if God's always there, hey God, how about a little help, right? So it's okay to do that. It's okay to pray. Now Jesus also said, love your enemies. Don't take David out of context. Okay, some of you are thinking that already ahead of me, right? Because, yeah, we want to be loving our enemies with the love of Christ. But yet David was also acknowledging, you know, God, I, you and I, God, are on a mission together. And those who hate you, um, I'm not going to align myself with them. Would you take care of them? So David, very honestly, is crying out for God to help him with his enemies. But then David takes a switch. 
And this is where we'll spend our last five minutes. David takes a switch and he says, God, search me. Find the truth about me. God, help me understand myself better. And he switches from God, wow, you're awesome, to God, take care of my enemies, to God, sometimes maybe I'm my worst enemy. God, I don't understand why sometimes I still do things I don't want to do. And he asked God to search him. And what he's asking for is that God would take a look at inside of me and help me understand myself. And he, and he mentions three things. Search my heart. Search my fears, my anxious ways. And search my hurtful ways. Is there any hurtful ways in me? And what he's doing is he's, he's asking three great questions that we will grow spiritually as we trust in Christ walk in His grace and forgiveness, but we also ask God, God, what is it that drives me? Why do I do what I do when I don't want to do it? Because usually most sin is rooted in the fact that that sin is doing something for my soul. It's doing something for my life. It's making me feel more loved or more precious or more special or more significant or more secure. You know, I mean, all those things that that when we trust in things other than God, we, 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 um, we, we follow all the little gods of the world. Pleasure, possessions, wealth, success. What's driving me? Help me understand what my heart issues are so that I can deal with that. Because until I do that, I'm probably going to keep messing up. My anxious ways. What do I fear? Because fear is one of, I know, one of my enemies. A lot of times when I'm not willing to follow God, it's because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what might happen. I'm afraid of what people might think. I'm afraid of, of my security, my future, this or that. So, you know, understanding, because I don't want to live fear-driven lives. And knowing that God knows everything, and He's always with me, ought to help my fears, right? And then thirdly, He gets more personal. You know, God... When am I the enemy? When am I wounding other people? Show me if I'm doing something hurtful to other people around me. Because I want to learn to love like Jesus. You know, one of our aspects to our vision here at the church that grew out of our staff this past year um, was we want to build disciples of Jesus who demonstrate the love of Christ. We're not just talking about the love of Christ. We're demonstrating it. You know, so if we're, hurt, if we're hurting the people around us, our family, our spouse, our friends, God, if I'm, if I'm being hurtful, then show me so I can follow you. And it ends with this next point. That is, lead me in your everlasting way. Don't miss that. That's not a tagline at the end of the psalm. It's like the natural response. Wow, if God is this kind of a God... I want him to search me, show me where I need to repent and change and grow. And then God, you lead and I will follow. But sometimes we just don't want to surrender because we have a bad view of God. But this God is one that will give us life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. For Jesus to deliver that life, we must let him lead and we follow his way, not ours.
but we fight against him. Sometimes a little scene in a movie, um, God uses it to teach me. And I saw this movie a few years ago. I've shown this to you once, maybe four years ago here at Seacoast, but it's worth seeing. I want you to watch this short clip from the movie The Horse Whisperer. As this horse whisperer is trying to train a wild stallion so that that stallion might be able to serve this little girl. But I want you to watch the clip. I want you to watch for the heart attitude in the clip. And in the clip, you are not the trainer. You and I are not the little girl. You are the horse. Watch this. And if you saw the rest of the movie, you see this horse experience its purpose, experience joy, experience love, experience being cared for. All the things that if it's a wild stallion, um, it would miss. And I think that's life. That's us. That's our life. That's me. You know, whenever I look God in the eye like that eyeball of that horse that time and says, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, then I miss out on life. The kind of life that Christ delivers, walking in his grace, uh, experiencing purpose, walking with the true God, submitting, yes, but submitting that I might experience purpose and joy in life and the grace of God. We want to give you a couple minutes as the band comes to lead us in a song or two. And I want to ask you first, though, to sit for a couple minutes in prayer quietly and just reflect on these three questions, asking God. So God, search me. Where am I like that horse pulling against your will? Search me. What am I afraid of? Who am I hurting? And in asking God to extend His grace that is free, remembering how forgiven you are, but also that He wants us to walk in His everlasting way. And just being willing to say, God, I'm yours. Take some time in prayer. So Father, as we, um, as we pray with you, I'm sure you bring to every mind here, I know you bring to my mind some things that I have been fearful of or not trusting you with. Whatever it is, Father, uh, we corporately thank you that Jesus invites us to walk in his love, abide in his love. Abide in His grace. Thank You that if we confess our sin, You are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Thank You. Thank You for Your unconditional love. Thank You for the fact that even when You have to tighten the rope and allow or cause some pain in our life, that You do it to get our attention. You do it because You want to break us. So forgive our rebelliousness. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you that your way is wise. 
is good. And you lead and we will follow. Thank you that your spirit lives in us to empower us to, to do that. That you've set us free. So use us, give us purpose, give us meaning in our life this week. Let us be your servants, servants of those around us. And use us to your glory. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.